The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to I Took the High Road with Jacob Jansen. Our program is designed to educate about the drug problems that are reaching epidemic proportions in the United States. Could we be approaching the drug problem the wrong way? Mr. Jansen has been down the road of addiction, down the path of recovery, and now helps others find their path. Addicts are not bad people trying to get good. They are sick people needing to get well. Are you a part of the solution or the problem? Come and join us for an hour of fantastic guests, amazing stories, positive encouragement, and information that just might make your community a better place. Now, here's your host, Jacob Jensen. Good morning, and welcome to I Took the High Road. I am your host, Jacob Jensen. We have another great show today. Today's show is the Shores Treatment and Recovery Center with CEO Lyle Freed. Uh, so Lyle is a third-generation native of Miami, Florida, graduated magna cum laude with a psychology degree from Liberty University. He is a lifetime member of the National Honor Society for Psychology. He is a Florida board-certified addictions professional, internationally certified alcohol and drug counselor, a certified health coach via Villanova College of Nursing, an approved training provider through the Florida Certification Board, a trained and experienced interventionist. As a training provider and consultant to startup treatment facilities, Lyle has assisted many individuals in the addictions treatment field, improved their professionalism, and gained board certification. He has also guided several organizations in the process to obtain state licensure and has helped to establish several successful treatment centers. Lyle has previous experience as the executive director of two residential substance abuse treatment centers in Florida and has served on the board of several homeless coalitions and other community organizations. He has worked extensively in services with the homeless, addicted, mentally ill, and persons with disabilities. Lyle has extensive training in alternative solutions for addictions and holistic approaches backed by modern-day science. This training Training includes neurotransmitter replacement, food and nutrition, proper medication procedures, and non-pharmacological alternatives, rich generic and environmental causes of mental health stressors, stress management, neurofeedback, and more. And we're going to talk about some of those things a little bit later in the show. Lyle has also worked abroad providing a provide variety of services to those most in need, most recently in Haiti, where he's helped local residents receive an education leading to self-sustainability, clean drinking water, and medical assistance. He has served as the president of his Rotary Club and and was the District International Projects Chair. He is a Paul Harris Fellow and an ordained pastor. He remains passionate to help others obtain a better life for themselves. What an honor to have you here, Mr. Lyle Freed. Thank you so much for being here. 
Well, thanks for having me. So uh, the first question that I have for you is, how did you decide to get in the, involved in the recovery field? And really, what drives you to accomplish all that you have? You have such a wonderful bio. Well, a personal experience. I, uh, I had another career. I was very successful. Uh, and for me, money led to problems. I was living and working in Miami where drugs are not exactly scarce. Uh, they became a part of my life. And then when I realized that they became all of my life, it was time to do something about it. And um, so I, I put myself in treatment. Um, and then I, I didn't have a real good experience. Um, uh, they wanted a lot of money, which I gave them. When the money ran out, uh, they told me I was cured, even though I knew I wasn't. So next I went to another facility that uh, required no money. It was a community-based therapeutic community. Um, and, and there were problems there as well. And so I, I just sort of saw that it could be done better. And so I set out from that point on. I sold my business and decided to uh, learn how to do this and do it better. And I was spent a little over a decade looking for all the best models and all the best solutions to provide the best care possible. And, and right away, I have to say congratulations on your recovery. It's, it's a, a lot of work, and it's, it's the people that I think are in recovery make the biggest difference because we really understand uh, what other people are going through and really have that passion to help others. So can you please tell me a little bit about the Shores Treatment and Recovery Program and how it differs from some of those other treatment facilities or programs you, you, know, you were talking sure, about? Sure, it was born out of that frustration as I was uh, developing other agencies and uh, working in other agencies, and I kept seeing things that I thought uh, were askew. We're, we're in a people business. We're, we're in, it's all about helping people. And I saw many facilities that the focus was simply on uh, the dollars. And, and that was frustrating for me when, when their care was based upon insurance dollars. I, I didn't feel that that was a caring industry. So um, one of the things we do is we care for people based on their needs, not on their ability to pay. Uh, it is a business. We do need to have money to function, but it can't be the driving force or the quality of care drops. And the other thing I saw was because of that uh, need to look at the bottom line for a lot of places, they, their clinical team was abused. I mean, the, the hours were ungodly, and you had an unhealthy sure. clinician trying to make other people healthy. So we keep very small caseloads. We try to keep them around four or five. We max out at six clients per therapist. Uh, we keep our group small, uh, and we keep it very intimate and family-like atmosphere. One of the other things I saw was that some services that science has proven will be helpful in long-term recovery were left off the plate because of the expense of them and that they, they weren't reimbursable by insurance companies. So we take all those things that we know works, that science has proven, and we apply those as well regardless of reimbursements. And, and that includes, uh, you know, the chiropractic care, the massage therapy, the auriculotherapy, um, uh, acupuncture, um, the neurofeedback, uh, neurotransmitter replacement therapies. We do a lot of holistic works that go along with the medical model um, that insurance companies don't recognize, but we know work. In uh, okay. that, and we provide a very therapeutic environment. The idea is that where you get well and who helps you get well are important. And then I think Absolutely. another thing we do that some do and some don't is we actually track our outcomes, uh, outcome models, and we're gathering data on a weekly basis of how healthy is the therapeutic relationship between the client and their therapist. Do we need to switch therapists? Do we need to take a different tact? Um, are they feeling themselves that they're getting better? We do a lot of self-assessment. And then to that end, 
We also do uh, central nervous system, CNS testing on the clients when they come in and some other uh, baseline markers that we can then measure as we go along and see it, literally improvements in their brain activity and their in their cognitions and the way they think, act, and feel. And so we know that we're moving in the right direction. It's not just uh, throwing things against the wall to see what sticks. Sure. Yeah, I, uh, you mentioned back there that you keep a very low ratio of uh, clients to therapists. I, I think that is so important so the therapist can focus on each individual. And it is a very stressful job. I've been to a few facilities where you go there and you see that the therapists or counselors are um, overworked or upset because they don't see a lot of the successes. Um, you know, in those successes, we, we talk about substance use or drinking is usually a symptom of some of those much deeper underlying conditions. How does the Shores deal with some of those underlying conditions as a more holistic program? And I know you mentioned a few things, and I want to get into absolutely, those absolutely. We, because we have the small caseloads, we see everybody as an individual. And uh, it, some clients are frustrated because they say, "Well, how come this person is getting this treatment or that treatment or this?" And it is truly tailored. There's no uh, there's no template to work from. And so one of the things you can do to those treatments is address, you know, someone who has uh, higher anxiety levels that cause them to try and medicate that anxiety. We'll, we'll target that. If they have trauma in their life, we have trauma specialists. And, and so it is definitely tailored, and the beauty of that is they can be seen, you know, uh, many times. They can be seen every day for individuals instead of once a week. They can get the holistic treatments that complement the medical model based on their particular needs. And so once we get to know them and we... And we have a pretty highly trained staff, very, very good, that recognize that anger outbursts, for instance, are typically uh, uh, an indicator of PTSD or trauma in someone's life when they have these sudden outbursts. So we recognize those symptoms and signs, and we know to help guide the client into healing processes for that. Um, and it is pretty all-encompassing. When people think holistic, they often think alternative only. Uh, and, and yeah. you know, n- not the traditional models. So some of the traditional models have value. And so to add that in as a holistic with a W, you know, as in covering the whole spectrum of care, uh, I think is a better approach. You know, I've heard you mention, you know, dollars as not being the driving factor. I'm also an interventionist, so I work with a lot of treatment facilities in the Midwest, and I often find insurance companies need pre-screenings and don't offer the right levels of care, and there's often not scholarships available. How do you make all of this happen at a low affordable cost with all of these programs that usually... Uh, well, you know, if you manage yourselves well, you can still... It, I guess it really depends on what's important to you. And to us, people are important. So we can make money. We don't need to make a killing. We're just trying to make a living. That's one thing. So we put people first. If I really wanted to have a lot of money, I quite frankly, I go back to my old career and, and do much better financially. But the rewards of helping people are, are phenomenal. And we've got a team here that's assembled that understands that. We have people coming, asking to work with us because they see what's going on here. They And they're in that burnout phase at another place that's making them work 60 hours and so we are able to get high-quality individuals who can come in and are actually willing to take a pay cut to workforce because of the heart of what we do, and they have that common heart and that interest in seeing people get well. And if you keep that as a driving force, you'll make enough money to keep the doors open and, and still help a lot of people. Uh, and 
do good work along the way, and everybody will be able to eat and keep a roof over their heads. You know, Lyle, I, I chuckled at that comment because I don't know if you knew, but I, I used to be a hedge fund manager in my early 20s, um, and it certainly has taken a pay cut moving into this area and this field because it's something I'm very passionate about. I feel like it keeps me accountable and uh, on my own path of recovery, uh, very yeah. selfless. And, it is, and it it's more rewarding than any amount of money. Absolutely, you know, and and it's uh, those things that uh, lead to happiness. You know, if uh, if we enjoy what we're doing, we'll never work a day in our life. So there you go. So uh, I want to get back to some of the more specific things that you guys do there uh, that that a lot of treatment facilities don't. The first one I want to touch on: uh, you, you talked about neurotransmitter replacement. How is that effectively used during drug and alcohol treatment? Oh, it's, it's a great tool. What we do, and for those that don't understand what neurotransmitter replacements are, the first of all, there's three application methods. There's the IV, intramuscular, and oral supplements. Uh, in our area, IV is the most effective delivery system, followed by intramuscular injections, and then finally the, the least effective, but still effective, is the oral supplements. Um, but first, let me explain what they are and then why you would choose one delivery system over another. Neurotransmitters are just the, the, the chemicals that run through your brain and give you signals, and they really regulate your thinking processes as well, and largely your feelings. So, for instance, somebody who's um, low in serotonin will typically lack that positive outlook, flexibility, and, and stable emotional. Uh, they won't have the sense of humor. They'll more likely be negative, depressed, uh, full of anxiety, and low self-esteem. And so what we can do is feed the brain the, the substances, the precursors that are used to make serotonin. Uh, you know, a common reaction when you uh, have low serotonin is for your doctor to put you on an SSRI, which is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, so that more serotonin is available to your neuroreceptors. Well, an alternative, and not to say that those aren't good, um, that, but there's something you can try first to know if you need a, a, a prescription medication, 5-HTP is what our body uses to make serotonin. So if we properly dose someone with 5-HTP, their body can ramp up the production of serotonin. They may find that um, that solves the problem in and itself. The negativity, depression, anxiety, and low self-esteem tend to go away. Um, so we often, like you said earlier, there's an underlying issue often in our um, addiction. There's a big question always, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Did you use because you were depressed or are you depressed because you use? Did you disrupt your neurotransmitter system by drugs or did you go to drugs because it was already deficient in some particular area? Whatever the answer is, we can start feeding the brain the healthy alternatives to allow it to make those neurotransmitters, the endorphins, the catecholamines, the, you know, we also know that you need uh, glutamine. You need your body needs your brain needs sugar to function. It doesn't need sugar the way we do it normally um, no. with the refined sugar. But glutamine is a natural version that will help sort of grease the skids, if you will, to make it a, an analogy for sure. you there. Sure. Uh, so what, what we can what? do, and the reason that works is it also helps abate uh, cravings and some of the withdrawal symptoms. So if someone's in early withdrawals or post-acute withdrawals. You, we treat the medical model, and then, for instance, Suboxone is a, is a big piece in people's lives. But when they come off Suboxone, there's still a little bounce back. Uh, through neurotransmitter and some other replacements and some other holistic approaches, we can ease that so that the process into early recovery is much smoother and uh, less likely to cause relapse. 
what what a novel approach in the 21st century using science to deal with those underlying conditions. <laughs> so, so uh, on on the um, uh, on the level of uh, neurobiology, what you know, you mentioned neurofeedback. What is neurofeedback, and how can it help with recovery? Well, neurofeedback is a type of biofeedback. It measures brain waves and produces a signal that can be used to feedback and, and teach sort of self-regulation of the brain. Um, there, there's a lot of different uh, particular versions of it. Uh, what we do is we hook our clients up to an EEG. We read their brain waves and in real time adjust uh, auditory and visual inputs to sort of retrain the brain. So if you have a tendency for ADHD or, or anxiety, the EEG will read that you're heading in that direction, that your brain is in that mode of thinking, if you will. And then it sends signals, both subliminal and auditory, to redirect your brain to another area so that you, be, through training of the brain, through, through repetition, your brain learns that when it begins to feel anxiety, to redirect over to this healthier area. And so uh, it's, it's pretty neat. Uh, it's been used since the 20s. Uh, it's been perfected over the years. Uh, it's... The clinical practice has been more proved and more practiced in the UK, but has really gained ground here in the States in the last 10 years. Uh, the, there was a lot of question in the early years about its efficacy, whether it really worked or not, and we now know that it does. The science is solid, and, and we have good proof that for certain conditions, it's extremely helpful. Um, why do you... Th- I'm sorry, continue. Yeah, that's fine. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, why do you think, uh, you know, if, if science is showing some of these things uh, effective, why haven't uh, other facilities kind of uh, attached onto this and started incorporating that in their program? Do you think it's a cost thing again for them? Or I think that's part of it. I think you've got that and just uh, we've always done it this way kind of thing, you know, where hmm. you, this is what we've always done. And yeah. people typically teach what they've learned. And so if they went through school or went through treatment themselves and, and they got well and, and they assume that what worked for them is what will work for everyone else, and it may or may not. Again, we're all different. Um, so I'm not saying that the, the old models are completely bereft of any validity, uh, but they in themselves, I mean, are, let's face it, the, the track record overall in the recovery industry is not that great. As with most chronic diseases, there's, there's a, high ladder, a high rate of relapse. So why not uh, use all the ammunition you've got is sort of our theory. Now, there is the cost factor as well. Uh, the typical neurofeedback machine is going to cost you 10000 That If you don't do it, you don't have to spend. And then you've also got the time of your, your personnel involved and, and supplies and all that good stuff that comes in. And if there's not reimbursable uh, for what you're doing under your licensure, then it's only a cost outlay with no financial return. To us, the financial return is, is simply that we see our clients get well, and that's our, that's our marketing model. We don't do a lot of marketing. We simply uh, give clients good treatment, and they become our marketing. They tell other people about what's worked for them. Sure. You know, Einstein's definition of sanity continues to do the same thing and expect a different result. And I think we, uh, you're starting to do that, changing uh, the way we're looking at treatment uh, using the science. And on that note, we got to take a quick commercial break from our sponsors. But when we come back, uh, more with CEO Lyle Freed. Your life, your health, your network. 
You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Hi, my name is Jacob Jansen, and I am the owner of My Recovery Project. Do you know someone using drugs or alcohol? Are their actions negatively affecting you or people you care about? If so, it is time for an intervention. Far too often, we are a country that acts after problems arise. It is time to act now. Interventions confront a person and allow them to see their self-destructive behavior and how it affects themselves, family, and friends. Just as important, interventions help the family understand the disease of addiction and make sure the loved one gets the help they need by offering a solution of treatment. I have been through the hell of addiction, and I have found a passion in recovery helping others. Getting a person into treatment can be a difficult task. I help the family through this, providing options, and I become a mediator during the intervention. If you would like more information, please visit www.myrecoveryproject.com or call 262-290-1072 for a free consultation before things get worse. My name is Linda Lenz. Last year, my husband and I received a phone call that no parent should ever receive. We received a call that our 23-year-old son had died of a heroin overdose. We were on a mission to find out how this could happen. He was a beautiful person, intelligent, a straight-A student, and a wonderful son. But here's what we did not know. The drug landscape had changed. Kids in junior high and high school were using prescription pills to get high. Prescription pills are opiates, just like heroin, and they can be found in almost every home's medicine cabinet. To combat this problem, we established a Facebook page, Stop Heroin WI, and a website, StopHeroinNow.org. Please go to this website and donate generously. All of your money goes directly to prevention programs and rehabilitation programs. StopHeroinNow.org. So no parent ever has to receive that phone call. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to I Took the High Road with host Jacob Jansen. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or send us an email at jacobjansen at itookthehighroad.com. Now, back to the show. Hello, and welcome back to the show. You are listening to I Took the High Road, and I am your host, Jacob Jansen. Uh, before the break, we were talking to uh, CEO of the Shores Treatment and Recovery Center, Lyle Freed, about uh, what is neurofeedback and neurotrace, neurotransmitter replacement therapy. Uh, coming back to the break, Lyle, nutrition and healthy eating um, is so important and usually ignored during active addiction. How do you address this at the Shores? Well, again, we, we're looking, you know, since the 80s, we've been saying this is a brain disease, uh, but we're not Typically, we haven't been treating the brain. And so nutrition is definitely a way to do that. Uh, again, that feeds into healthy neurotransmitter activity. And so what we do is we provide a, a breakfast and lunch uh, and snacks throughout the day that are what we call a pro-recovery diet. Um, we start training and teaching the clients what foods cause what effects and how to eat healthy, how to prepare healthy meals as part of a life skills training that we do. 
Uh, we actually have nutritionists that come in and, and work with the clients. Um, we have someone who's coming in now daily and making healthy smoothies for them in between. Uh, just trying to teach them that you can enjoy food that's good for you and that your life will be better for it. And there's a, one of our doctors, uh, Dr. Gable, teaches a full class on a regular basis on the benefits of healthy eating and, and how that affects your neurotransmitter activity, keeps clarity of mind and, and a better outlook and attitude. I, I, my mom is uh, a nurse who works for the county, so I remember in my early recovery, uh, it was all about you know healthier eating and eating my vitamins. And every morning when I would come home, she would have a glass of water and call it my morning water that I had to take. There you go. Uh, so you know she you know she was always trying to get me into these healthier routines, and some of those actually stuck, and I'm probably a bit healthier for that. So mom, thank you if you're listening out there. I'm sure you are. Um, typically, so when I, someone enters treatment, they haven't been doing a real good job at taking care of themselves. And so there's often a lot of uh, repair work, if you will, to be done as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it doesn't just end after those 28 or 30 or 60 days. So um, I noticed, you know, in the bio that you are also a health coach staying on this uh, theme of health. I'm a recovery coach. What is a health coach and why can a coach be an important piece of somebody's recovery? A health coach is just that, someone who sort of coaches you along your life and, and good living. Uh, everything from uh, diet and exercise to a healthy outlook, self-care, uh, taking a day of rest, uh, relaxing the mind. There's so much involved. Good sleep, sleep hygiene, we call it, uh, is an important part of your health. So someone who has a, uh, an all-around look and training on what makes for a healthy body and healthy mind, and then to sort of coach others along that path, much like a recovery coach would. You can walk alongside them, be available, so that when they, they have an issue or a concern, uh, they can call you and you can check in on them and ask how it's going. Just sort of encourage them to move forward in the right direction for their, their whole body. Yeah, it's certainly something I wished I would have had in my early recovery. I didn't even know about coaching until I was about two, two and a half years in. And even when I started uh, taking my coaching courses through Crossroads Recovery Coaching School uh, in Washington, I would go to different treatment facilities and say, hey, look, I'm training to be a coach. And no one had any idea what a coach was, a recovery coach, a life coach, health coach, uh, about three years ago in Wisconsin. So slowly starting to move in that direction where it's becoming more accepted as a, a viable option to help people in early recovery. So... Um, I wanted to get into uh, medication procedures. In, in the, the uh, bio that I read for you, you said proper medication procedures. What do you mean when you say proper medication procedures? What is a proper medication A lot of people have, uh, that we come across in our work have chosen to medicate themselves. Uh, and there are uh, well-meaning doctors who write prescriptions without understanding some of the consequences. We have a lot of family doctors who practice psychiatry. And so understanding what does what and what works with or against what. Um, so we have a, a team of doctors that work with us to sort of vet out what they've been on, their history, and get them properly medicated because uh, oftentimes they're going for the quick answer and, and, again, what we've always done. So they may report certain symptoms to a doctor, uh, sometimes in order as a part of their drug seeking. Uh, they know that if I say this, they'll give me that. Uh, we have the ability here to actually do neurotransmitter testing as well as DNA testing so we can determine which medications do you uh, process better. So, you know, the old thing with psychotropic drugs is that uh, doctors will say, well, try this. We'll wait a few weeks and 
see how that works. Um, yeah. And then if it doesn't work, then that means we need to try something from this area over here and see how that works. Having some better information on the front end allows you to do less guesswork and be more accurate in your prescribing. Um, the other thing is understanding a lot of people um, have done things to their own body and are experiencing things based on the substance abuse that they've experienced. And so understanding the, the timeline and lifeline of those consequences so we know that, yes, you're, you're feeling a bit of anxiety, but that's a natural withdrawal symptom from the, your substance of choice, and we can help you with that, but you don't need to stay on this medication, this anti-anxiety medication, or maybe we can find a holistic answer to that. Acupuncture is a great answer for that, um, you know, to, to get you through that so that you don't need to be chained to drugs for the rest of your life. So simply throwing medications at somebody is not always the answer, and throwing the wrong ones certainly isn't. Uh, so Sure. You know, I, I heard you mention uh, talking about uh, being able to do some testing to see, you know, if the, these drugs will work the way that they're supposed to. Um, I, a few months ago, did a show with the medical director of Rogers Memorial Hospital, and it came, uh, the, the question, we started talking about Suboxone and Methadone, uh, and it came up that there was really no pre-screening for people who would be appropriate for this medication, have, uh, and we said we should develop one. Have, have you found a certain category of the population that's maybe more uh, adapt to use methadone or suboxone with more success, or how do you use methadone or suboxone? Not really, not really. First of all, um, there's different ways. To use. Methadone is typically a maintenance drug, and suboxone, not as much. It's just, suboxone is more of a, a titration, a, a short-term use, although some people oh, do I, use it for maintenance. And I was so going to say, I wish everybody used it for titration. A maintenance facility. We're a recovery facility, so while we will use suboxone to comfortably get somebody down off of opiates so that they don't go out and use to, to meet the needs of their withdrawal symptoms, when we don't get involved with methadone at all. That's a whole different category. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't know of any uh, biological testing. We do have uh, self-assessments and clinical assessments that we do to determine the, the viability of these approaches, but we don't have any biological test for it. There's no urinalysis that will tell you, you know, that they will metabolize this better than that for that that I'm sure. aware of. Sure. Now, there are some facilities that are saying Suboxone is a maintenance medication is the only way to go and it improves your success rates. And uh, every person that leaves addicted to opiates is on Suboxone. Can a non-pharmacological approach be just as effective? Well, it, it, I wouldn't, depends on what you mean by just as effective, you know, what your, okay. what your measure is there. Uh, will, uh, non, will the holistic approaches be as effective in abating the post-acute withdrawal symptoms and no, the, the suboxone immediately hits the opiate receptors because it is an opiate, and so, no, sure. there's no real immediate uh, holistic approach that will be the exact same answer. There are holistic complements that will help that and, and certainly ease that and ease the transition off of the suboxone as well, but as a standalone, there's nothing that does the same thing. Sure. Okay. Um, very interesting. Uh, you know, and, and it really does take a lot of work. And for me, it wasn't about taking that substance, but putting in the work. And I had a lot of uh, layers in place to make sure that I had to do that work, whether I wanted to or not. So I couldn't take the medications. I was in uh, trouble with the law and the judicial system. 
Layers of accountability are helpful and understanding, yeah. like you said, the work involved. I often ask my clients, how much time and money and effort do people put into a college degree? And they'll, yeah. you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars, some, you know, twenty to forty hours a week for four to eight years, and, and okay, why? Well, the have a good degree to have a better life later. Exactly. So for much, uh, quite frankly, less effort and less expense, you can have a greater impact on your future by simply putting the work into your recovery today. You know, and then that's, uh, I, I tell a lot of people that the recovery is work, but it's so much a better life. Uh, and also, you know, on the front end, when we go out and speak to youth uh, about the different drugs and issues, you say just go out and get a little bit more research and put in that work. You don't want to make a mistake um, on a split second decision that could affect you the rest of your life and start changing those the way you think. So um, what... You've you've helped uh, uh, establish several successful treatment centers. What to you really makes a successful treatment center? Well, my definition of success might be different than others. Uh, to me, uh, good outcomes, helping people, and sustainability are, are success to me. To other people, it may be dollar figures, uh, you know, a certain amount of income each year, uh, and certainly you can do that. But I think really they overlap. And it's this, that you have a quality team of professionals who work ethically, um, who provide the best care possible, and do so with the right heart and dedication. If you understand the rules by which you operate, and that's where a lot of people fall short, is they don't even know the, the state regulations or the codes of ethics that they're supposed to operate by, and it will end up catching them. Um, they tend to, uh, a lot of people who are in early recovery want to become treatment providers, and I encourage them to seek that, but to do it properly, to, to work your way through and have a good understanding. Uh, I knew when I wanted to get into this world that it wasn't an overnight process. I spent a good dozen years working to make myself educated enough and informed enough to be able to provide good care. Uh, it's, not an, it's not a one-year process. So mm -hmm. putting in the time, yeah. understanding the laws, the regulations, and, and best practices, staying always on the edge of learning. We, we do training several times a week with our staff. We're constantly learning new things and cross-training our staff. I think So I think training is a big issue. And then, of course, uh, having a sustainable model. Having worked in nonprofits for years, uh, I know the, the pains of, of trying to conjure up money. And so having a model that works financially, uh, I think, is important, too. Not trying to grow too fast, not trying to do too much, but treating the people in front of you the best you can now will help you to grow at a proper rate. Really, really good advice to take. I know one of my future dreams for my recovery project is to, uh, you know, as an interventionist, I'm on the front end. As a coach, I'm on the back end. Uh, but to eventually uh, start putting in those middle pieces for detox and treatment also. Um, so, Lyle, what is the difference between a licensed treatment facility and a non-licensed treatment facility? Oh, there's several, and it really it's, it actually varies state by state because each state has its own licensing regulations. Um, here in Florida, we have something called the faith-based exemption, which simply means that a faith-based community can provide faith-based care, and they don't need to be licensed. Well, naturally, that means they also don't need to document, keep records, or report to anyone. That can be good or bad. Um, if it's done right, it can be quality care, but it also leaves them without any oversight. Uh, and so one of the beauties of licensure, first of all, there's an air of credibility. It says, hey, I have standards to which I must maintain. 
It also says that someone comes by to verify that and audit me. Um, and then from the financial end, of course, there's the billing aspect. A, an insurance company is not going to reimburse an unlicensed facility. Uh, and there's a certain level of comfort for the family uh, with a licensed facility, knowing that there are standards they're held to, there's accountability, um, uh, there's standards that you may or may not meet in the unlicensed facility. Uh, there's just too many um, opportunities for things to go wrong for me in an unlicensed facility. I've run nonprofits that had an exemption but still decided to be licensed for that purpose. If someone would like more information on the Shores Treatment Recovery Center, how can they get it? Well, they can go to our website, which is theshoresrecovery.com, or they can call our main line, which is 772-800-3990. They can always email me, and that's L-F-R-I-E-D at theshoresrecovery.com. And I'd be happy to answer any questions they have. Perfect. And on that note, we got to take a quick commercial break from our sponsors. And when we come back, more with uh, the CEO, Lyle Freed, of the Shores Treatment and Recovery. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. My name is Linda Lenz. Last year, my husband and I received a phone call that no parent should ever receive. We received a call that our 23-year-old son had died of a heroin overdose. We were on a mission to find out how this could happen. He was a beautiful person, intelligent, a straight-A student, and a wonderful son. But here's what we did not know. The drug landscape had changed. Kids in junior high and high school were using prescription pills to get high. Prescription pills are opiates, just like heroin, and they can be found in almost every home's medicine cabinet. To combat this problem, we established a Facebook page, Stop Heroin WI, and a website, StopHeroinNow.org. Please go to this website and donate generously. All of your money goes directly to prevention programs and rehabilitation programs. StopHeroinNow.org So no parent ever has to receive that phone call. Hi, my name is Jacob Jansen, and I am the owner of My Recovery Project. Do you know someone using drugs or alcohol? Are their actions negatively affecting you or people you care about? If so, it is time for an intervention. Far too often, we are a country that acts after problems arise. It is time to act now. Interventions confront a person and allow them to see their self-destructive behavior and how it affects themselves, family, and friends. Just as important, interventions help the family understand the disease of addiction and make sure the loved one gets the help they need by offering a solution of treatment. I have been through the hell of addiction, and I have found a passion in recovery helping others. Getting a person into treatment can be a difficult task. I help the family through this, providing options, and I become a mediator during the intervention. If you would like more information, please visit www.myrecoveryproject.com or call 262-290-1072 for a free consultation before things get worse. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
are listening to I Took the High Road with host Jacob Jansen. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or send us an email at jacobjansen at itookthehighroad.com. Now, back to the show. Hello and welcome back. You are listening to I Took the High Road and I am your host, Jacob Jansen. Today's show is The Shores Treatment and Recovery with CEO Lyle Freed. Uh, before the break, we were talking about what makes a good treatment facility uh, and what's the difference between a licensed and non-licensed facility. Uh, during the break, we were talking about aftercare, and I know we said to talk about the stigma, but I want to switch gears a little bit because aftercare is such an important piece for somebody's recovery. So how does the Shores um, help provide aftercare for somebody who's there? Well, we always tell our clients and their family that once they've been with us, they're with us for life. They're part of our family now. And so we provide ongoing, unlimited uh, phone-in calls, uh, you know, aftercare touches, uh, we check in on them on a regular basis. We also develop a pretty solid aftercare plan before departure. So weeks before we expect a client to graduate and move on to the next phase of their life, we begin a full plan, including what we call a recovery calendar. And down to the details of what are you going to do, where, and when. If you're a 12-stepper and you're going to be going to meetings, what meeting are you going to, how are you going to get there, who are your supports in that area? We work with the family in advance of returning a client to them so that the family has healthy communications and the whole family system is being treated while they're here so that they understand healthy aftercare from their end. And again, we stay in touch with them for as long as they're willing. Uh, I've got clients that I still talk to on a regular basis from over a decade ago, uh, just sort of touching in. And you hear the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, the, the difficulties and the trials as well as the triumphs, getting invited to marriages and baby showers as well as funerals. So uh, that kind of ongoing contact with healthy relationships, whether it be with us or people you've developed back home, is to me critical to to long-term success. You know, I've heard one of my guests say an addict's best chance at recovery is the family, and it took me a little bit to realize that, but it's, it's so... Uh, needed to have the family understand the disease of addiction too, and how they are slowly contributing, uh, you know, to that addiction. Well, uh, absolutely. And there's a, there's how you phrase it. I think matters because we we've heard for a long time about um, you know codependency enabling, uh, and it's it's much deeper than that. Um, the whole family needs healing. Uh, there's there's an effect that we call secondhand use. You have an addict in the family, an alcoholic in the family. Other people are affected by that, and they need healing as well, just like with secondhand smoke. I may not have chosen to pick up the cigarette, but if you're sitting next to me doing it, it's affecting me. And the same thing is true with, with addiction. And so there's just overall healing. And oftentimes the, there was need for healing before the addiction ever raised its ugly head in the first place. So going back to a healthy environment for everybody uh, makes for a whole healthier family unit and therefore better success for all involved. You know, uh, one of the things that I really uh, found wonderful about the facility that I went through it and 
it was just a wonderful group of clients that were there at that time. Uh, and the program that I went through had an alumni program where uh, every once in summer they had a picnic and then they had their, their winter thing around Christmas where everybody could come. And I got to see uh, quite a few individuals that were still making it, still successful, and that was very encouraging. That was a, yeah, we a have a strong thing. alumni program. We do also have an alumni, a closed group alumni page on Facebook that they really like to utilize and encourage each other through and, and stay in touch with. And, it, and I find it very beneficial. Absolutely. What needs to happen in order to break the stigma attached to addiction and treatment in this country? Well, I think part of what you're doing and, and some more, I mean, uh, talking about it, you know, it's always been this, uh, you know, elephant in the middle of the room kind of thing. And part of that was driven by the anonymity that we have in, in the 12 steps. And I, uh, was listening to uh, Clarence Snyder was one of the original AAers. He's the one who came up with the term Alcoholics Anonymous, and he said you, you, people have misunderstood what that meant. And, you know, it meant that you can come in here, you can get well, and you don't have to tell people outside of here, but but don't leave it there. Uh, and so, I think uh, and there's a film out now called Anonymous People. There's um, mm-hmm. a recent blog on a on a blog called uh, That Sober Life by a young man, Matt Cohen, and um, he's part of Young People in Recovery. And it was excellent. He talked about why I choose not to remain anonymous. And because the stigma exists, we hide. As we hide, we reinforce the stigma. So I think those of us that have successfully broken through to the other side need to talk about it. We, we need to be open about it. There's no shame in, in being in recovery. As a matter of fact, you should be proud of it. You're a survivor. You're an overcomer. And I think the more of us that talk about that will free up others to talk about it. There's a, the thing where if, if you go uh, to uh, a social and there's women talking, and one will say, you know, my son suffers with you know, type 1 diabetes. You know, that, that you can get support and encouragement. If you say, my son suffers from addiction, there's a quietness comes over. So we need to break that by talking about it, by realizing if we let them put the stigma on us, it will continue. We need to stand tall, stand proud, and talk loud about the fact that recovery is possible and that it is a brain disease and we can get better. So, you know, it's it's interesting that you bring that up because when I was in my early recovery, uh, you know, and I would say, hey, I just celebrated a year clean or six months or three months or whatever it was, the people would go, congratulations, I'm proud of you. And I, and I always kind of thought, wow, that's really weird. I'm getting congratulated for something I wasn't supposed to be doing in the first place. And yeah, then I've heard that clicked, before, and I yeah. said, and then something clicked and I said, well, I realized about it. If, I'm if looking you, at If you this, suffer uh, a heart condition and you do the right thing, yeah. uh, or go back to diabetes, let's say you have type 2 diabetes and you change your diet and you reverse the need for medication, you still have a chronic disease of diabetes, you still have to be careful what you put in your body, but you've reduced your need or eliminated your need of medication. That's something to be proud of. You're taking care of yourself. Same thing. Absolutely. And, and that's exactly what I was going to say, that I was viewing it as a criminal behavior, not as a ha- mental health condition or an issue that I have taken care of, uh, but I was viewing it more as that criminal behavior. And remember, I'm in the Midwest where we are very punishment heavy. It's a very judicial uh, punishment heavy system, not treatment heavy. So, um, and I think that, that is changing slowly, probably much slower slowly, than it should, yes. but I think the world is beginning to get an understanding that Incarceration doesn't typically make people well. Uh, It it may dry them out for a while, but it doesn't get, again, like we talked earlier, to that root issue. 
yeah, you know, for me, it uh, put me in connection with more people who are using until I really had that mindset that I need to be clean. What it did is link me in uh, with criminals who were doing worse things than I were and putting those mm-hmm. ideas in my mind. So, uh, you know, if, why do we ever think that making things more difficult for an addict will ever make things better for them? Uh, you know, it was, was a phrase that I love from Julian Grand. So... You recently wrote an article called The Connection Between Sugar and Drug Addiction Relapse. That's really interesting. What is that connection? Well, there's more and more information coming out on the reality of what they call sugar addictions or the negative effects of sugar consumption. Uh, We're seeing it all over the media. Um, There is more research to understand the exact links, but one of the things we know is that when we raise our our sugar level quickly through consumption of high sugar or high-carb products, we end up with that downside, which is the the low blood sugar. And that's a combination of an adrenaline release, your hungry brain, and the symptoms of that are typically anxiety, shaking, sweating, a pounding heart, uh, emotional reactivity, irritability, anger, tears, you know, a, a foggy brain fatigue, insomnia, all the same things you hear people talk about, the dry drunk syndrome or even mm-hmm. the PMS, um, it, you know, we, we see those same things. And so what do we typically do when you have those feelings as an addict or an alcoholic? You know what fixes that. So having that crash, your, your brain is going to react and ask you to fix this need. Your limbic system is going to go into repair mode and say, I need something to make this go away. So um, having your sugar plummet uh, will increase cravings. We know that for a fact. There's enough science to prove that low sugar will increase cravings. The way you get low sugar typically is that high sugar. You know, you, um, when we eat sugar, it's released into our bloodstream. The pancreas releases insulin. The insulin attaches to the sugar molecules and sort of escorts them to the nearby tissue cells and stores it, it, the sugar. Now, in non-diabetic people, they accept it and they store it for future need. Uh, in, in a disrupted system, uh, um, a dysregulated blood sugar is the result. And so it goes downward, the insulin goes away, and then it dips, to your, your blood sugar levels dip real close to your baseline. And the brain says, hey, it's time to do something here. Um, find something with lots of sugar in it or, or find something to do it. We know now that by keeping a, a even glycemic level throughout the day, eating small meals throughout the day that are, you know, regulated as far as how much sugar you're doing, will reduce cravings. And cravings are a primary driver for relapse. So proper eating, again, back to that nutrition component, uh, will help us avoid relapse, and and particularly sugar. You know, for for me, too, I see a lot of my clients, uh, you know, myself included, those unhealthy eating habits continued. For me, my substance addiction turned more to a uh, process addiction of overeating fast food, especially while I was uh, incarcerated in Huber and uh, driving between, you know, work and, and the Huber facility. Uh, what I tell my clients is it's always, it's not about a diet. It's about a lifestyle change. It's about a small exactly. lifestyle change. And for so right. many people, so that's are so a temporary difficult. solution to a long-term problem. Uh, lifestyle yeah, changes, but, however, are changing the way you live, think, and behave, which is really what recovery is all about. Uh, and, and you're right. We do tend to, uh, all the time you see in treatment, people replace one addiction with another, maybe a healthier one, maybe not. Uh, and, and eating is definitely a problem in early recovery. That's one of the reasons why we focus so much on nutrition here is try and train them while they're here on how to carry that forward in their life. So we have about five minutes left. So do you have any final message for our listeners? Or is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't gotten through yet today? 
What's important for people to know? I think it's important to know that we can get well, that if you or a loved one is, is suffering from this disease, that there are solutions, there are good solutions, there are long-term solutions, lifelong. Uh, also, that if you know somebody who has struggled and seems to be hopeless, that there's always hope. One of the primary markers for success and recovery is hope for a future, hope for something better. Uh, mm-hmm. The old thing about, you know, uh, one day at a time, staying clean one day at a time is is great if it's for uh, something further down the road. If I'm only going to stay clean one day at a time, I can start tomorrow, you know. But if I'm staying clean today because there's something greater to shoot for later and I believe that I can have a future, that might make me make it through the day and then the next. So um, yeah. I think uh, that people know that even for the chronic relapser, there's hope. There are other ways to approach things than what most people are practicing, and they work um, and, and never give up. Uh, you know, we've had people who came to us after uh, over 20 treatment centers and they now have long-term success. I don't even know if it's so much us. is that they, 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 You gain a little each time, but just never give up. There's always hope. It's, it's about planting the seeds and hoping some of them will grow into a beautiful recovery. And uh, one of the things, you know, you mentioned hope. Uh, one of the, the three things that I do with clients as a recovery coach, uh, you know, when they get out of a treatment facility is the first, find support, uh, you know, in the community, whatever that might be, whether it's a 12-step program or, or a social group or whatever it is, church. Uh, the next thing that we do after them help find support is reduce stress in their life. What is causing problems? How do we help them start solving those things with the turtles that they have? And then the third thing, which really relates to hope, is how do we help them find purpose in life? Because if they find purpose, if they have bigger, grander goals, if they have plans, they have hope. Yeah, absolutely. We we find that, that hope for a future involves a purpose, and to that end, we do something called a structural tension chart that helps them plan and and shoot for real goals in their life. So uh, we got still three minutes left. Do you have any quick questions for me? I'll give you a I'm I'm just, how did you end up doing what you're doing? You told me that you were a hedge fund manager and you uh, went to recovery. Um, How did you end up in recovery radio from hedge funds? I was uh, a recovering Ivy heroin addict. I got clean July 19, 2010. Um, I left the hedge fund in about 2005, 2006. Um, I was incarcerated during my period of incarceration. I realized I wanted to be an interventionist. From there, I realized I wanted to do something more and be a recovery coach. Um, And it was one of my classmates that got a call from Voice America Studio uh, and said, do you know anybody that would be a good radio talk show host? And I absolutely love to talk. So they uh, sent me my name, and I did a few hours of interviews and put together a show of uh, some really fantastic guests, and uh, they gave me an opportunity to do it. So. Uh, really, really enjoying doing that and uh, just finding more and more pieces in my recovery that I can keep building on and keep keeping me busy. And uh, I really hope that the show is something I can continue with. March 6th may be my last show if I don't find sponsorship. Uh, but I've really had a, an awesome opportunity to do this for the last five months and have a couple more great shows coming up. So, well, I thank you for doing it because that is part of removing the stigma that we talked about. Yes. The fact that there are people willing to stand out there and talk about this and, and share it with others, I think, is crucial to moving forward. It's also crucial to changing public policy 
that does okay. tend to lean toward incarceration rather than rehabilitation. And it's something that needs to change, and I think that you're part of that change and a change voice for us as a as a whole, as a people. Um, and to that end, I, I, I guess we do have a little time here. On February 14th down in Florida, we're having a Rockers in Recovery uh, concert for prevention and awareness. Yep, and, and you so, can find out, but uh, we got to go. I got to Google you Rockers in Recovery. There's a Love of Recovery event that day with a whole bunch of bands of musicians that are either in recovery or are supportive recovery. Um, so yep, and you can good. find that on one of my last episodes. Lyle, are going to cut us off. I just want to say thank you so much for being here with us to talk about this. All right. You have a great day. Okay, thank you so much. That's all the time we have today. What another wonderful episode. Uh, thank you. Please join us next week and enjoy life. Thank you for listening to I Took the High Road. Please join Jacob Jansen for another encouraging hour next Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll see you next week.